Varunasu. So we'll have a very brief preface to the meditation. We're going to come back to shamatha. It is our baseline, after all, for for the practice, as a foundation for Vipassana, as a foundation for the Dzogchen meditation itself. And I really simply invite you on an utterly pragmatic note to, in terms of your shamatha practice, whatever works, whatever method it might be, whether it's Theravada style, mindfulness of breathing at the nostrils. If that's what helps most, do that. It's like that, I've said it so many times, that if you come to a locked door and you have three keys, you remember? A brass key, a gold key, and a wooden key. Which key shall you use? The key that opens the door. You know? And so don't worry about whether it's Theravada, it's Okshan, it's Mahayana, it's Tibetan, it's Indian. I mean, really, it, does it work or not? And you know it, and it's so transparent. That's why I love to start with shamatha. It's so transparent. You don't need to ask a lama to do a mo or a divination or ask your astro- astrological, astrological chart to be done or go to a psychoanalysis. My, you know, I'm not quite sure. Is my shamatha working? You know, you know. It's relaxation, stability, and vividness. You've heard that like you probably know it better than your address, I hope, by now. And so, whatever works. That's the bottom line. Now, having said that, now secondary is what I would generally recommend. Having really meant, you know, if, if Theravada style mindfulness, mindfulness of breathing works well for you, then stick with that. And we can discuss it from week to week. But generically speaking, and also for people who are listening by podcast, following, following along, seeking to engage in the practices we're doing during these eight weeks. Generic advice would be balance earth and sky. And that is, earth is a mindfulness of breathing in any of the modes, but especially this mode I've been teaching recently, that resting in the stillness of awareness, more of a Dzogchen approach to the mindfulness of breathing, so not focusing on the body as an object, or on the abdomen, or at the nostrils, just being present and letting the sensations, the fluctuations of the field, rise up to meet you, and just maintain a rather peripheral, rather almost casual awareness. Because you you don't need to give that much attention to noting whether it's long or short. right? If I hold up a long finger and a short finger, that doesn't take a whole lot of analysis to figure out which is which, right? in a similar fashion. Long or short, that's all you really need to give. But the rest is not spacing out or just going to rumination or whatever. No, that's staying right at home. So something like maybe 80, 85%, just staying right at home. Awareness resting in its own place, illuminating and knowing itself. And peripherally, yes, in-breath, long in-breath coming in, long out-breath going out, noting that, and then everything going along with it. So I'm not going to repeat that right now, but that's earth. That's earth, right? We've done it a number of times. I think you're familiar with it. The sky is really any variation or any of the modes of the shamatha without a sign or awareness of awareness. But as you'll recall very clearly, the culmination of that practice, the sequence of the practice, as taught by Padmasambhava in Natural Liberation, and then it crops up just the culmination in the Vajra Essence, in, a, in at least one or two of the other of these revelations of Dujum Lingba, it's merging mind with space. Merging mind with space. That's where you end. But even there, I break it up. Now, this is my now clearly my interpretation, you know, because the instructions are extremely short. I mean, that's pretty much it. Merge your mind, release your mind into empty space, or they'll actually say external space. And my sense of that is, don't get caught inside your head. External space, external space, release, like as if your thoughts, your images, and so forth were like if you had a, ca- a cage full of doves, wild doves, and you just open the top of the cage then they would just go into external space. 
them a hole. All the doves are gone. They've just flown off and disappeared into the sky. So no notion of a kind of an interior space. Okay, I'll let it into kind of like an enclosure. Ex- exterior space, external space. Like that. Okay? And again, the mudra may be helpful. And that is what it's not, is visualizing space. So here's my thoughts. And now, we Like you're visualizing some expanding balloon. Not like that. It's not a visualization. If there's a mudra, it's this. Like that, just... And it's gone. Released, gone. Like that. Just vanished right into space. Right? Something like that. But now I'm going to... So that's... There it is. Release your mind into external space. That's the instruction. But now we're going to go into the meditation right now. It's a reiteration, but I think I've taught it only once in these last four weeks or so. And that is I'm going to break it into phases. Uh, and we're going to be doing the oscillation. And the oscillation will, will be with the breath. Here it is, the, the little, how do you say, front load the session. We're going to do this and conjoin it with the oscillation. The oscillation conjoined with the breath. Then we'll move to doing the oscillation, but disconnect from the breath. And then we'll dispense with the oscillation. And simply rest, having released your mind into space. Okay? And try to make it practical. Okay. It's not that hard. Not that hard. I'll try to show how easy it is. So, for this one, please find a very comfortable position. Supine. Standing on your head. Whatever works for you. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state. your eyes be at least partially open. Evenly rest your awareness in the space in front of you without focusing on any object, without focusing on the space of the mind or thoughts. Just release your awareness into the space in front of you.
Let your breathing settle in its natural rhythm and see that it continues to flow effortlessly and without constraint during the entire course of the session. This is very important. Now, as the breath flows out, each time, let this be an occasion for utterly releasing thoughts, images, memories, desires, everything in the mind. Release the mind in its entirety and release it into space. Release your awareness into space not focusing on space, simply releasing your awareness into an objectless, open expanse with every out-breath. It's a sheer absence of thought, a silence, but in an open expanse. During the in-breath, as you just maintain this peripheral awareness of the in-and-out flow of the respiration, you know what to do. Don't withdraw or contract your awareness at all. Simply elevate the intensity, the clarity, the focus of your awareness. The awareness of awareness itself. Heighten that as the breath flows in. And as the breath flows out with this utter core sense of release, letting go, release the whole of your mind into space with no remainder. All that remains is just awareness itself. Arouse and release, arouse and release.
to the best of your ability, maintain a non-conceptual flow of cognizance, clear and knowing, but not talking. Now, especially when your breath becomes more shallow, the in-and-out breath short. When the time is ripe, then disengage your attention entirely from the rhythm of the breath and set your own rhythm for the release into objectless space and the arousal of the clarity of awareness of awareness. Whatever thoughts come up, thoughts, images, memories, they're part of your mind. Release them into space without a trace.
Now, when you release your mind into space and you're resting there, if you have a very clear sense of the luminosity, the cognizance of your own awareness, and when you arouse your awareness, the awareness of awareness, if you still experience that spaciousness, that openness, that non-objectivity, such that there's no significant difference in your experience in the phase when you're releasing into space and when you're arousing the awareness of awareness, when the emptiness of space and the luminosity of awareness are experienced as coextensive and of the same nature, the emptiness is luminous, the luminosity is all-pervasive. You have released your mind into space and rest there, doing nothing. And let's continue now in silence.
possible. So we'll return to the text very shortly. I just have one footnote um, pertaining to the whole discussion this morning of causality, dependent origination. Uh, and it's, it's, I think, it's really a, mar- it's a, mar- a marvelous hypothesis. It's by just one, and we're finished. Uh, his name is George Ellis. He is still alive, rather elderly uh, mathematician and cosmologist. Uh, he co-authored a text called The Large-Scale Structure of Space-Time with Stephen Hawking, published in 1973. So if you are co-publishing with Stephen Hawking, it gives you pretty good credentials. Um, very, very distinguished. He's won a number of great awards and so on. He's considered one of the world's leading theorists in cosmology. So clearly a very eminent mathematician and physicist. And he's proposed a fourfold model of reality, consisting of, first, matter and forces. Sounds familiar? Secondly, consciousness. Thirdly, physical and biological possibilities. That's an interesting one. So the whole notion that possibilities are also real. That sounds good, doesn't it? Because possibilities are real, otherwise nothing would be possible. I think that followed. Uh, physical and biological possibilities, and finally, mathematical reality. It's hard to deny that, right? Especially if you're a mathematician. People like George Ellis, Roger Penrose, and a number of others, when, they are, when they're doing their cutting-edge mathematics, they say this, that they real, really feel they are making discoveries in a dimension of reality, and not just conjuring up really cool, interesting, profound thoughts. Okay? So those four, matter and forces, familiar, consciousness, familiar, physical and biological possibilities, and mathematical reality. He says all of these levels of existence are ontologically real and distinct, but are related to each other through causal links. This is really, this is, this is not the normal run-of-the-mill run reductionism at all. And it's also, it's not obviously not, how do you say, materialistic monism, that everything boils down to matter, but nor is it Cartesian dualism, not even close. This is something, this is something fresh. That each one is as real as the other. The realm of mathematics as real as consciousness. Consciousness as real as matter and forces. And matter and forces as real as possibilities. Physical and biological. This is sounding really good to me. Let's read on. By the way, this comes from Hidden Dimensions. That's one another one of my books. That I passed around that diner. Do you know this is a, do you know this is a dream? Know this is a dream? Uh-huh. What? This is very cool. This is his, though. I had nothing to do with this. So there, all these, le- all these, all of these levels of existence are ontologically real and distinct, but are related to each other through causal links. Each has causal efficacy. In this model, language and symbols exist as non-material effective entities. Effective entities have causal efficacy, just like matter and forces and so forth. Causal efficacy that makes really good sense. And they are non-material. Clearly they are. They're created and maintained through social interaction and teaching. This is sounding a little bit like Madhyamaka, where phenomena are real. Why? Because there's a consensual agreement, right? It's not just one person existing in isolation, but we agree on terminology, we agree on a whole framework of conceptual designations, and then for us, working within that consensual cognitive framework, then we say such and such exists, right? That's exactly what he's saying here. 
But I don't believe he said he's Manyamak. He's a Quaker. He's a practicing and very devout Quaker. George Ellis. I'd love to meet him one day. Their existence of each of those four categories. Their existence is not contained in any individual brain. Nor are they equivalent to brain states. So consciousness, language, and so forth. Seeing a fire out there. I hope that's all white. Yeah. I'm sure it's contained, yeah. No problem. Uh, podcaster, don't worry. We're not running out of the building. So their existence is not contained in any individual brain, nor are they equivalent to brain states. This is like a fresh breath of fresh air blowing through my mind, I have to say. Though they may become embodied in neural circuitry and other complex systems. In other words, information, language, and so forth can be embodied in a robot, a computer, a brain, and so forth, but they're not really located there. You know, They're not intrinsic. They're not identical to. Other complex systems include molecular biology, language and symbolic systems, individual human behavior, social and economic systems, digital computer systems, and the biosphere. In all such systems, vast quantities of stored information and hierarchically organized structures process, process information in a purposeful manner, particularly through implementation of goal-seeking feedback loops. I know it's complex. It's on the notes. I just sent them off to Sangej. She'll make them available tomorrow. Uh, that was a big, long sentence. But it does resonate, doesn't it? whole notion of, of the universe being an, a, an information processing system, then the microcosm, a human being not boiling down just to matter and energy and their properties. But we are here we are, a conscious information processing system, and we're goal-oriented. We don't want suffering. We do want happiness, right? This produces emergent behavior in which the behavior of the whole is greater than the sum of its parts and cannot, e cannot even be described in terms of the language that applies to the parts. So again, now once again, we have this part-whole analysis. The parts, when they are the parts of a, of a single entity, like, for example, a solar system has a given number of of planets, of planets and their moons, the sun, of course. But, um, but it's one solar system. So we speak of our solar system. That's singular, right? Our solar system, we don't say are, we say is, right? Is. It's called a mariological sum. Mariological sum. And that is, it's a singular entity, but it's something designated upon the sun, the various planets, their moons, and then, of course, the gravitational field generated and so forth and so on, everything within this system. But, of course, the system doesn't break off suddenly, you know, because the gravitational field just go out into infinity, inverse square law, but they don't break, right? But we say our solar system, and conceptually we break. At some point we say, well, you know, we've got it here. You know, there's Pluto, and then pretty much that's where it ends. But, of course, the gravitational field from Pluto goes out in all directions, let alone that of the sun. But here's the point, and that is the sol our solar system does things that none of its individual components do. The sun by itself doesn't do. No planet does. None of the moons of any of the planets do. Right. And so that's why he speaks of emergent behavior. Well, it's very, very well known. It's well, very well known in social psychology, social dynamics. Uh, people in mobs, people, do, in, people in groups, there was a mob that came by the mob came by, and they and this mob was was this mob not were this mob was doing such and such, right? 
that mob was doing things that no one of those individuals would, might, might do on their own. But now there's a mariological thumb. A mob came to our center and did such and such. Right? But then here we're all set up. He says ontologically real. Ontologically real. That's what he said, right? That the realm of mathematics, biological, physical possibilities, matter and forces, and consciousness, they're all ontologically real and they're linked by causal interactions, right? How real? And that is when you look for the mariological sum, this one thing, the solar system. Well, what if the solar system lost Pluto? You know, somebody just booted it out and said, you're on your own. You know, you could, we couldn't even decide whether you're a planet, whether you're a midget planet or a large asteroid. They had a whole debate about that some time ago. You know, do we still count Pluto? Pluto as a planet, because it's kind of a runt. So they had a whole congress about that, whether Pluto was a planet or a midget planet or a big asteroid or whatever. And I think they decided, I can't remember, I think they decided it was, okay, midget planet. Of course, they decided that, right? Pluto didn't get to vote. Say, what? Yeah, I'm small, but I'm not that small. Midget, you know, it's kind of like derogatory. Can you say medium size or like petite? Couldn't you just call me a petite planet? You know, that would be my bit more, a bit more respectful. <laughs> well, Pluto got no vote. It's the people over here on this planet voting about whether some big chunk of rock out there gets to be a planet or not. We know that's pretty, that's pretty geocentric of us. <laughs> that were voting for heaven's sakes. They didn't weigh the, you know, because there was just no empirical evidence to say, okay, well, this is it. Objectively, Pluto has demonstrated that it's a planet or a midget planet or a great big rock, you know. But if Pluto got booted out, some big meteor comes through and just blows the crap out of Pluto. We just have shell fragments and floating off into space and we have one less planet. Do we still have a solar system? Sure. Just... Minus one planet. But then another, another asteroid comes up. Blows off Uranus. Oh, one more, another down. Still got a solar system. You know where I'm going, of course. Just keep on bringing in those asteroids. Great big one blows the smithereens out of Jupiter and Saturn and Mars. And another one knocks off Mercury and then Venus. Have I covered all of them? Except for us? Is this still a solar system? One sun, one planet, one moon? Is that still a solar system? What if some another asteroid just blows us away and all you have is a sun? Is that a solar system? How many parts does it need to lose? If, at what point is it no is there no such thing, a single entity that's the solar system? At what point? You know, how much can you lose? And of course you see, it's up to us. Just like the scientists, the astronomers, decided whether Pluto was a planet or not. Pluto didn't get a vote. They simply decided. They, can't, they had a big congress. They voted. And then, okay, hands up. Hands down. Vote. Yay or nay. And then they decided. Just like the people of Scotland just decided whether they wanted to be a part of the UK. Oh, there's one happy English woman. <laughs> They would have, would have, the UK would have lost 30% of their land mass if Scotland had split, but they decided rather strongly uh, to stay part of the UK. Okay, that's a tangent. But there it is. You can see that if you start just start, start taking pieces away, when is it no longer a solar system? 
And I can tell you exactly when, when you say so. When the conceptual designation is withdrawn. And as for a solar system, so for everything else. Everything consists of mariological sums. Everything. A moment, a single moment of consciousness is a mariological sum. Because it has a beginning, has an end. It is a moment. It's a finite moment. It's not infinitesimally short, like a pulse of cognition. It has a beginning, has an end, has a middle. And a single pulse of consciousness has qualities. It has a quality of cognizance. It is cognizant. It is luminous. Right? So now, how many of those qualities can you take away and still have a moment of consciousness? It's a conceptual designation. And the remarkable thing, this is Tsongkhaba, the brilliant Tsongkhaba, the remarkable thing about this is that the basis of designation, that upon which you are imputing the label solar system, moment of consciousness, human being, mushroom, anything, that upon which you are imputing the object is never identical to that which you've imputed. The basis of designation are never the same. The basis of designation is never the same as that which you designate upon it. If it were, it would be inherently existent, but it never is. And so when you're looking for, this is now just straight Tsongkhapa, this is Vipassana, and Vipassana is absolutely at the core of dream yoga. I'm not just rambling here. That's right there. When you're looking for, objectively, whether it's something more conceptual, something that simply comes to mind, like a, a pulse of cognition, whether it's an electron, a quark, whether it's a galaxy or a tree stump, whatever it may be, you see, okay, what's the designated object? The designated object is a tree stump, something nice and solid and chunky, right? Tree stump. Over there, there's a tree stump. That's a mariological sum. It has parts. It has qualities, right? And so, and then we've designated tree stump on the basis of something that is not a tree stump. And if you're looking objectively for the thing in itself, from its own side, by its own nature, that was already there before you designated tree stump, if you try to find it objectively, well, you not only don't find it, but you find that it's not there. And that's emptiness. That's the emptiness of a tree stump. Dream yoga time. Thank you, George Ellis. So this is 20th century, late 20th century, 21st century physics. It's breathtaking. It's fresh. It's dynamic. It makes sense. It's not reductionistic. And so final call to the cognitive science community, which I will call the Rumpelstiltskin community, that when it comes to physics, you've been asleep for 100 years. Wake up and smell these marvelous roses of Stephen Hawking, Anton Seilinger, Andre Linde, George Ellis, Roger Penrose. They're breathtaking, and man, are they not mechanistic, materialistic. That went out in 1865, which means you're just about 150 years old, sleeping at the wheel. So wake up, and let's all be in the 21st century. And now we come back to this, one page 142. And you remember that first kaboom kind of statement he makes. I call this ontological shock therapy. The Tsongkhapa is so nuanced. He really is. He's so nuanced. He's taking you by, the shallow, by, taking you by the hand from the shallow end of the pool 
and he's saying, oh, these phenomena appear, but they're not inherently existent. But they, they do exist, of course, of course, yes, of course they exist. They appear and they exist, just not inherently. But, you know, they do. They, and now, you know, we'll, we'll linger there and we'll understand how to make, how do you determine what is valid cognition, what is not valid cognition, and really, really smart. And uh, things are not inherently existent, but, you know, we'll get to that. And, and then there's dependent origination, and he unpacks that. And you're kind of getting up to your neck. And then after a, after a while, as this fellow, this monk from Natang, many of you have heard the story, but not everybody. Hello, podcasters, I'm about to give you a story. And that is, there was one monk from Natang, and he's listening to the great Tsongkhapa. Not only brilliant, but profound realization. is giving Dharma talk on emptiness. Probably hundreds. He was very famous during his time, very renowned. And one of the many monks in the assembly listening to this master speak on the theme of emptiness, this one monk, there's one monk from the, the, from the region of Tibet called Nartang, and this monk is just totally focused on Tsongkhapa's words, taking them in, drinking them in. And then suddenly, in the midst of Tsongkhapa's talk, the monk grabs his collar like, like, that, like he's freaking out. Like he grabs his collar. And Tsongkhapa was clairvoyant, so he knew what was going on. And he looked right at the monk, smiled at him and said, Ah, the monk from Natang has just established conventional reality on the basis of his collar. <laughs> he was slipping into kind of like a sheer, wah, a total emptiness. And he wasn't quite ready to go there yet. So, oh. I exist, I, I have a collar, therefore I exist. I think that would have been his credo. I have a collar, therefore I exist. Right? So I wasn't quite ready to be lingering there in the deep end of the pool. But Tsongkhapa got him close, so he could have a spike, some aspect of emptiness. So that's Tsongkhapa's approach. It's really quite breathtaking. I'll just, I'll just cite one more thing from Tsongkhapa before, because we are dealing with different methodologies here. But Tsongkhapa, I think, when, during the first decade that I was studying, to the 70s, I'm sure this was the case, the one text that inspired me more than any other, I memorized it, studied commentaries, I taught it. Even then, there was some friend of mine who wanted me to teach him, wanted me to teach him something, I taught him this one, taught him the commentary. It's the first text, the commentary, was the first text I could read on my own. It was thrilling. I didn't have a lama taking, my, taking me by the hand. I could read and I said, wow, I can understand this. It was really quite thrilling. Three principles of the path. Renunciation, bodhicitta, view of emptiness. Authentic view. Yamda betawa. Authentic view. But here's just one point. And Tsongkhapa, when he's coming to authentic view, uh, he says, when... Through, and I'm paraphrasing him, but you can easily find it. I'm sure it's online. There are a number of translations. But when... By your insight into the nature of appearances, and by way of appearances, insight into dependent origination, but by your insight into the nature of appearances, your insight into emptiness deepens. And when, as you investigate emptiness, your insight into dependent origination deepens, now you've found the middle way. It's just the opposite of what beginners experience. And that is scientists, for example. They're not beginners, they're superb, they're extremely expert in what they do. But scientists all over the place, in many, many fields, are studying dependent origination. 
right? Photosynthesis, that's dependent origination. The formation of galaxies, dependent origination, right? Activities within the brain, these immensely complex local and global interactions taking place within the brain. That's, that's dependent origination, right? And so causality and how local and non-local phenomena influence each other. Well, science is really very much about dependent origination all over the place. But what tends to happen is, whether scientist or anybody else, a plumber. Plumber's also looking at dependent origination. Why is your why is your toilet stopped up? Well, we'll find the causes, you know, and dependent origination. Right? But when we when we look into causality and we see this influences that, the overwhelming and very deeply ingrained tendency is to reify. If something has causal efficacy, it has to be really there. If Gachi reaches behind her and, and gives, uh, let's say, not to an extra pen because her, her ink has run out, well, then she must be really there because she actually, there's Natu over there, here's Gachi here, and she, Gachi causally influenced Natu over there. She must be really there. And she must have really done something because then Natu smiled, oh, thank you, that was very nice of you, and they must be really there, right? Well, I got the dependent origination part, but I've reified it all. But then I probe into Gache. Okay, where's Gache? Where's Gache? Gache, Gache. Is she her body, her robes? No, no. Body, heart, lungs, brain? No. Okay, I'm going to be clairvoyant now. X-ray vision, here's Superman. Looking into her mind. I'm seeing images, thoughts, emotions, desires, memory. Gache, are you anywhere? I'm not finding... I'm looking... I'm. Gache is right in front of me. And I've just gone with X-ray vision. I've gone into her intestines, her kneecaps, her earlobes. I've checked everywhere in her body. And then I went through with my Superman vision. I did a total scan of her whole mind and even the substrate consciousness. I just, in this hypothetical, you know, Superman. And she wasn't there. There were just a whole bunch of events arising in dependent relationship with each other, but she wasn't there. And I'm looking, she's not anywhere else either. And she's not there. And she's not anywhere else. And she's not there. She's not. She doesn't exist. So when you go into emptiness, we wind up with nihilism. And then, oh, but then she smiles. Oh, there she is. She just influenced me. Whew. Okay, then she's really there because she just influenced me. She smiled. So that's the normal tendency. When you look into causality, we reify, especially if multiple people are doing it. Oh, well, now we know it's real. Because I checked, he agreed with me. She agreed with me. This lab agreed with that lab. Oh, well, then, then, it, then it's real. Then it's absolutely inherently existent. It's really out there. Because different labs corroborated each other's findings. Then it's absolutely out there. Pratita Samupada. But then you go into quantum mechanics, like Anton Zeilinger, describing to his own in his quantum mechanics. And he said, you know, when you go right down there, and he's an empiricist and an experimentalist, he doesn't, he's not sitting just with a, a pad, pad and pencil. He's got this fantastic technology, his laboratory, cutting-edge research. The best, some of the best in the world. And he's describing to his holiness, when we take an elementary particle, like an electron, for example, and we try to probe into it to find out what is its actual nature as it exists in and of itself. What is it? There's a not finding there. We don't find it. And that's when his holiness said, how could you understand, how could you know that without knowing Madhyamaka? So you go there and you come up with like, is there really a world out there at all? Because you look for it and you don't find it. So you wind up maybe going nihilistic. And then you find events, 
for which you can't find any cause. And then you think, well, gosh, they're not really there and events happen with no cause, so you may be throwing out causality. So Tsongaba, breathtaking here. Both of those are not the middle way. One's going slipping right off to nihilism, the other one's slipping right off to substantialism. But when you're inside into causality, dependent origination, when your insight into the very nature of appearances themselves leads you deeper into the insight of emptiness, and you're probing into your ontological probe into emptiness, the more deeply you realize emptiness, the more clearly your awareness of pratyatisamutpada, the nature of causality, you're affirming causality by the power of your realization of emptiness, then you found the middle way. I find that breathtaking. So when George Ellis said, ontologically real, each one is as ontologically real as another. The realm of mathematics and matter and forces, each real. How about this? How about dreams and waking reality? Do dreams have causal efficacy? Simple question. Do dreams have causal efficacy? Of course they do. Everybody knows that. You wake up feeling really rotten from a nightmare. You wake up really feeling happy if you had a marvelous dream. right? And within the context of the dream, could, could Natu be sitting next to Gachi and she, could Gachi give her a pen and make her happy? She, could she smile and say, oh, thank you, so I appreciate so, Sure, why not? So within the dream, there can be causal efficacy, even though there's nothing there from its own side. There can be regularities. People don't just act crazy all the time in dreams. Sometimes they're a bit predictable. You know? Put your key in the lock and it opens up the lock quite frequently. So there we are. That was a little background in the approach to emptiness by way of pratita samutpada, dependent origination. And now we continue. Now, here is ontological shock therapy. As I said, Tsongkhapa takes you through the, into the shallow end of the pool, deeper, 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 avoiding the two extremes of substantialism and nihilism. But Padmasambhava, well, you remember the analogy of Kama, uh, uh, his name is um, Kamagyumarimuche. This Lama had the dream. He said it was merely an appearance of Padmasambhava, but I would actually be willing to say, I think he actually met Padmasambhava. I mean, what do I know? But that's going to be my working hypothesis. What did Padmasambhava do in his dream? Did he give him a good Dharma talk on the relationship of emptiness and inherent non, you know, dependent origination? No, he picked him up by the head, put him in a cauldron of fire, and burned him, burned him down to dust. He just torched him down to minute molecules. <laughs> I think it's called ontological shock therapy or burn therapy. He torched him down to basically nothing. He disintegrated him and then reformed him, pulled him up and said, here's somebody stable. That's Padmasambhava. So I think it's safe to say Padmasambhava's approach is not for sissies. And that's the rather gentle Padmasambhava. Padmasambhava, when he's in the wrathful mode, put on your abesto suit. Don't expect it to be comfortable. He's not going to torch you. He's going to torch your mental afflictions. And if you're identifying with your mental afflictions, you're going to get third-degree burns, and you won't like it. So either don't go to Padmasambhava or don't identify with your mental afflictions. Those are the two ways. Here's Padmasambhava. You ready? And I've warned you. 
It is like this. All phenomena are non-existent, but they appear to exist and are established as various things, like red and white. That which is impermanent is grasped as permanent. And that which is not truly existent is grasped as being truly existent. He's going right into the dreamlike, dreamlike nature of reality really, really fast. And this is where you can start practicing dream yoga today, and you can succeed. You don't have to wait. You don't have to wonder, is this going to turn out well, and am I going to succeed? You can practice it and start succeeding on the day you start. It's this wonderful word in Tibetan, that, for example, to take, it, take the example of, of practicing of shamatha. If a person is practicing shamatha and somebody else comes and interrupts their meditation, say, you're karajaga. What are you doing? I'm accomplishing shamatha. Remember that? I'm, accom- I'm accomplishing shamatha. How far are you? First stage. I spend almost all the time wandering. But I'm accomplishing shamatha because this is how you do it. When you're in first stage, this is what it's like. And I'm accomplishing shamatha. Come back later and I'll tell you again. So you come back six months later. What are you doing? Accomplishing shamatha. Where are you? Stage four. But I'm accomplishing shamatha now as much as I was earlier. Because when you're on, on stage one, you have to be on stage one. It's all very nice to think you'd like to be on stage five. But if you're not, you accomplish shamatha by being on stage one and doing it well. And then stage two and doing it well. That's why they have the stages. Not to give us goals, but to help us avoid having false expectations. One of you commented to me just recently, uh, you're on a certain stage of the practice. And he said, aha, I see that I was expecting, I was demanding, I was a perfectionist. And I thought, I'm doing well only if I'm way up there. If, I have, if I'm having no excitation at all. That's when it's going well. Stone silent. But the person wasn't yet up on stage eight. That's when you're stone silent. That's when you have not, not, not even any subtle excitation. But the person wasn't there yet. But being a perfectionist, thought that if I'm doing it correctly, I should be having no excitation at all. And then feeling frustrated. That's being on stage three, let's say. And then thinking you should be on stage eight and then feeling you're not doing it well. Well, you are accomplishing shamatha on stage three, which means you have a certain degree of tolerance about medium and subtle excitation. That's what those nine stages are for. To give you a sense, you know, what might you expect here and there as you move along the path? But it's all accomplishing shamatha. Every from the first moment, I've just found the sensations of my breath at my nostrils. Good, you're achieving shamatha. But I lost it three seconds later. Well, that's, what's it lo- that's what it's like. Get over it. You know, If you're not a prodigy, well, most people are not. So, boo-hoo. So likewise with dream yoga. From the first day, so let's, stay, let's imagine today's the first day, start accomplishing dream yoga from the first day. Don't wait. Don't, don't wonder how long will it be before I have a lucid dream, will it be a good one, blah, blah, blah. Forget that. Because you can't control that. But when you're practicing dream yoga, as soon as you're practicing, you're accomplishing it. And he's just told you how. And that is our, in our everyday waking life. We tend to grasp onto that which is by nature impermanent. as being permanent. We form friendships, and we feel they're going to last for a whole lifetime. They very rarely do. We form marriages. In America, about half of them collapse. They didn't think that on the marriage day, like, you got 50-50 chance, Buster. You know, they're thinking this will be forever. This will be forever. Well, there are very happy marriages. There are some happy marriages that last for 10 years, and they're no longer happy. You know, 
You acquire something, you think you're going to keep it. You acquire something new, you think it's going to stay new. You look into the mirror, you think you're going to look that way later. You're in good health. You're happy to be one of the healthy people, unlike those people over in Bangkok Hospital. You know, they're the sick ones. Isn't it good to be among the, the, the chosen, the healthy ones, until you're not? And it's not only for the good times, the bad times, when things are going badly. Then we, we you do the same thing. When we're sick, then we feel totally sick. When we're having economic challenges, then we feel, oh, I'm totally screwed. Whatever it is, this is our, te- this is our tendency. And it's dreamlike. It's illusory. It's illusory. I was thinking of a dream I had in the early 70s. It was a wonderful dream. It was a remarkable dream. And then I was re- remembering my, my best friend when I was 15, 16. They're the same. My memory of the dream, my memory of my best friend when I was 16, memory's the same. Now, did I dream my friend and actually have the dream? Was that actually real? Or was the dream a dream? How would I know? A dream's a dream. And so that's the first step. You can say that's the first step in dream yoga. That as we're engaging, we all live in Phuket, right? We're Phuketians. This is where we live. This is my this is my chair. That's my room over there. You know, twenty three twelve. That's my room. That's my room. You know, until it's not. Do it all the time. And so when we see that tendency coming up, recognizing this is dreamlike, phenomena appear to be more stable than they are. All of them. When we get depressed, we feel, oh, I'm so depressed, as if it's going to be there for, as if it's just a steady state. Until you really inspect it, you see it's actually a whole bunch of moments of awareness. And they're not nearly as homogenous as you thought. Right. So there's the first step in dream yoga, daytime dream yoga. Recognize that appearances suggest that they're more stable, more enduring, more unchanging than in fact they are. And don't be fooled. Not when you attend to your mind, your body, other people, relationships, situations, places, or activities. First step of dream yoga. Be aware of how transient, how fleeting. And when we're coming to the end of a life, and of course we all will, and we're looking and we're right there on the deathbed and, and death is just moments away, all your memories of your life, memories of your life and memories of dreams you've had, what's the difference? And when you stop breathing and you're, and you're in the bardo, now that life is finished, now you're ready to write your biography. Because you actually, you know, it's finished. You can write the whole story. Except they don't have any pen and pencil in the bardo. It's a bummer. But now, where are you going? Where are you going? You're in the bardo. Which means you have no rights. You have no rights. You have no human rights. Very simple reason. You're not human. Only human beings have human rights. I don't know if there are such, such, is, are such a thing as bardo rights. But you certainly don't have any human rights and you have no right to be reincorporated as a human being. No right. Simply you got it once, big deal. Where are you going? Because you are a stem, a stem creature. You're ready to become anything. If you have the proclivities, karmic imprints, which we all do, you can go anywhere. So where are you going? Where are you heading? 
You're going to be a stranger in a strange land, wherever you arise. You're going to be the new kid on the block. You're going to be the newcomer. And it's not going to be here. Not going to be familiar. His whole life. We think, I'm human. I'm human. I've got life insurance. I've got health insurance. I've got good health. I'm not that old. Dream on. Dream on. No guarantees here at all. No guarantees it will make it through tonight. People have strokes. People have anomalies in their heart. People have all kinds of things. Healthy one day, like that beautiful young woman that the Buddha told his monks to look at when, after she died. She probably, she probably thought she had a nice long life ahead of her, but she didn't. So that's a big one. That which is impermanent is grasped as permanent, and now this one. And that which is not truly existent is grasped as being truly existent. We do that in non-lucid dreams. We do it in the waking state. And once again, that sense of solidity, of firmness. I'm really here. That's really there. This is all really happening. I'm, I've made sense of things. Everything is equally ontologically real. <coughs> You're dreaming. You're dreaming. Whether you reify in the dream state, or reify in the waking state, you are dreaming, wake up, wake up, wake up. The mode of existence of phenomena is not, does not accord with the mode of appearance. Things appear as if they're absolutely there, and that is not how they are. You just have to check. So this is already daytime vipassana. Whatever insight. This is, this is Vajrayana, right? And so it's assuming that we just finished the vipassana. We're assuming you've got some insight into emptiness here. If you don't, if you're a metaphysical realist, then you may as well just practice lucid dreaming. Because a fundamental difference, now we're really in lucid dreaming, I'm not wandering. In lucid dreaming, and I'm so fortunate to know one of the world's experts, Stephen Lebert. He is a, I think he is, uh, a metaphysical realist. Most scientists are, he's a scientist. And so in his training, this secular training, wonderfully effective, I have great admiration for it. Um, if at any time, you are wondering, might I be dreaming? For example, you see an anomaly. That's the big thing to look for. Look for anomalies. Anything really out of the, out of the ordinary. Anything that doesn't quite fit. So we're, we're starting now, right? We're starting now lucid dreaming hyphen dream yoga. And in lucid dreaming, we're engaging here in prospective memory. Looking ahead. It could be when you go to the dining hall. It could be when you walk around you know, walk around to the track and so forth. It could be when you're in your room. It could be at any time. But at any time, you may witness some anomaly. Something, oh, I, did, I didn't see that coming. Well, that's a surprise. Or, you know, and it could be in the sky. It could be a monkey. It could be anything. Anything really weird. Like, whoa, I didn't see that. Wow, that's a surprise. You know, that's weird. When you see something weird, here's your first step. This is lucid dreaming. See something weird, something anomalous. Don't be complacent. Don't immediately, semi-consciously, try to make sense of it. Do a state check. Ask yourself. That's really odd. Lots of odd things happen in dreams. Much more so than a waking state. It's full of anomalies. But we somehow justify them. We just take them into account. Weird statements like, Intelligent people saying the mind is the brain. That's an anomaly. But you just hear it so many times. Yes, master. Yes, master. The mind is the brain. Yes, master. Because we hear it so often. You know. 
how long did people really think that the brain was a refrigerator? Aristotle said. It's anomalous. When you put your hand on the head and it's not even cold. It's anomalous. They should have done, now, Stephen LeBaire says, do a state check. Whether you hear something strange, you see something, you smell something, you feel something like, whoa, that's strange. Stephen LeBaire's advice, lucid dreaming, do a state check. You know what they are. So, easiest one to do that doesn't call attention to yourself, pull your nose. There's no cartilage in a dream nose. There is cartilage in a waking nose. If you're awake, you pull your nose, it doesn't get longer. If you're dreaming, you know, it turns into Pinocchio's nose, which tells you that the appearances are a lie. Right? That's Pinocchio test, right? Your nose gets longer, something's, somebody's lying. Well, the appearances lie. That is, the appearance would suggest that you're really in the waking state. But you just pulled your nose and it went got six inches long. Appearances lie. You're dreaming. And that's how you click into a lucid dream. Or you jump straight up and chances are very high if you're dreaming, you'll not just come flunking down. You'll remain floating, gently drift down, you'll drift off to the side, whatever. Or read something. It could be a digital clock, it could be written, print, printed matter. Read it, note it, take it out of your field of vision, bring it back in again, read it a second time. If you're dreaming, 85% chance that it will be different. Do it again, it'll be 92%. Do it again, it will be, you just get, it, it approaches 100%. Uh, it will change if you're dreaming. Very high, high likelihood. But that's, where, but that's what you do. Because the underlying metaphysical assumption or metaphysical orientation of modern psychology, including lucid dreaming, is well, there is a real world out there, after all. You know, this is not foolish. Very. Einstein was a metaphysical realist. I don't think many people called him foolish. We can disagree with him, but foolish he was not. And so that's the assumption. And therefore, when you're doing a state check, you're checking to see, am I dreaming, which is to say all of this then exists only as a virtual reality in the space of my mind, or am I awake, in which case this is a real chair. And this is a real book. And there's a real kneecap. And this is a real nose. See, it doesn't get longer. And so you're doing a state check. And you're determining, ah, I am awake. And ah, oh, I'm not awake. I'm dreaming. Right? And, then, and then you act accordingly. If you know you're awake, then you just carry on. If you find you're dreaming, then yippee. You know, then relax, stabilize, maintain clarity, and then start exploring the world of lucid dreaming. Right? So that's the strategy. In the secular scientific context, brilliantly effective, Really wonderful. And it entails that prospective memory of keeping your attention alert for the unpredictable occurrence of anomalies and then doing a state check. And then once you've determined that you're not dreaming, then carry on business as usual. The assumption there is the assumption of really psychology all over the place. And that is if you're normal, if you're a professor of psychology or a student of psychology or a, a, a therapist or a psychiatrist, you're awake. You're, a, you're sane, you're more or less as good as it gets. That your view is realistic. Because you're not delusional. You are awake. And the Buddha might beg to differ. Well, relatively speaking, you're sane, but have you noticed that your mind is encumbered by the five obscurations? Which is to say you're indebted, enslaved, in bondage, lost on a desert track. You know, etc. <laughs> That's not exactly sane. So sanity is all relative. But you know, the general assumption in modern in modern world, not just scientists, is that if you're you know normal, then you're seeing things as they are. Right? 
And the Buddhist view is, if you're normal, you're really sick and delusional and an object of profound compassion. Right? So that's one of the fundamental differences between this more secular approach, scientific approach, which is a marvelous way to start having lucid dreams. That's why I keep on referring to it. It's so good. But the dream yoga, this is Padmasambhava. This is deep end of the pool, where he just starts off by saying all phenomena appear, but they're non-existent. So in the, the dream yoga tradition, you're not doing state checks. There's no state checks. Pulling your nose, jumping up and down. No. At any time, at any time, you say, this dream. And one way or another, that's true. Okay? So let's continue. But to wake up, to wake up, to recognize the manner in which we are falsely apprehending or misapprehending that which is by nature fleeting, a brief duration, and always subject to change, and glomming onto it as being stable, reliable, enduring through time. You're dreaming. That's a dream sign. That's a dream sign. And when you see that you're reifying anything at all, that's a dream sign. You are dreaming. You're in a non-lucid dream. Recognize the dream sign. The dream sign is grasping onto the, imp the permanent, impermanent, as permanent, that which is not truly existent as being truly existent. That's your dream sign. Right? This is a heavy duty. Let's read on a bit, bit more. Although it is said that this cause of the bondage of all beings is like an illusion. So here's the bondage of all beings. It is exactly grasping onto that which is not truly existent as being truly existent. Although it's said that this is the, this cause of the bondage of all beings is like an illusion due to grasping onto the true ex existence of deceptive appearances, phenomena now appear as truly existent. So there it is. That's just core majamaka. Right? Phenomena appear, dream state, waking state, at all times. Whether you're a scientist, an artist, or a plumber, or a gardener, phenomena appear to you as being truly existent. You're one of the, the brilliant scientists at CERN, you know, operating the Large Hadron Super Collider. And you've, you make a discovery, the Higgs boson that was predicted, you know, some decades ago by this Scottish physicist. It exists. We found it. Now there's the rationale for spending $7 billion on this large super collider. We've discovered the particle that gives all other particles throughout the universe mass. Do you think they're grasping onto the true existence of Higgs bosons? Or are they just talking about some phenomenon that arises relative to the Large Hadron Supercollider, which was one very expensive particle? <laughs> right? If that was a $7 billion particle, well, how many of those do you want to make? You know, If it exists only relative to a cognitive frame of reference, namely an extremely powerful you know, particle accelerator, then would anybody pay for that? People are paying to know what's really out there. And boy, when they, when they publicized, we found it, we found it, there was no doubt in anybody's mind. What they're saying is, we found something that is out there in the bowels of the universe, and we plucked it out with our super technology, and it's absolutely inherently objectively there. And it is what gives all other particles mass. Therefore, we call it the God particle. But this is the interesting part. I, there's no sarcasm in my voice at all. I mean, this is a tendency we all have, right? But as my physicist friends tell me, just across the street, there can be a quantum physics lab, and they're saying, oh, yeah, but the physics particle, that Higgs boson, yeah, but it's just, a, you know, you look for it from his own side, and it's not there. 
So there's a disunity. I was told this just recently among atomic physicists, people like running the Hadron Super Collider, and people in quantum mechanics. Their view on what they're attending to is very different. Very, very different. Higgs, the CERN, and then go up to Anton Seininger's lab in Vienna. The way they're talking is different. Really, really different. So, a little bit more. It'll be dinner time. These originally, these phenomena, these originally arose from insubstantiality. They now appear even though they are non-existent. And in the end they will become nothing. There's the, in the Dzogchen Vipassana, Mahamudra Vipassana, we've really stuck, this, we've just come to the core. It's called Jung Ne Do Sum. The Jung, that is, you identify anything, and often they'll start with the mind, as I've mentioned before. Kamachame, focus in on the mind first, and then attend to everything else. But anything, the Higgs boson, or a galaxy, or a rock, anything you like, and you ask, okay, there it is, it appears to be inherently existent, I'm grasping it as inherently existent. Now, where did that inherently existent phenomena come from? When did it become existent? As an entity in its own side, such that it, when it came into existence, it did it all by itself. Right? All by itself. It wasn't there, and then it was there. When did that happen? Objectively. Where did it come from? Exactly what was the moment? Objectively. That is, independent of any conceptual designation, verbal designation. No, objectively. I mean, what's really there, after all, it really exists, right? When it, where did it come from? And Padmasambhava is just, just throwing you into the deep end of the pool from, insubstantia, from insubstantiality, from a sheer absence of substance. Oh, okay, that wasn't very satisfying. Okay, well then, where is it? What's the phrase now here? They appear even though they're non-existent. Okay, well now, where is it? Now, now, it's, now it's there. Okay, there's the Higgs boson. Okay, now, where is it? Where is it? How does it, cause how do, how does it have its properties? That Higgs boson, which is the Mariological sum that has its attributes, its parts, and so forth. And it's really there. It's already there. We're just labeling it after the fact. Because it's already there. It's already, it's got its act together. It's already holding its own properties. It's already defined itself. It already has its boundaries. I'm a Higgs boson. Not those guys over there. I'm a Higgs boson. Here's where I start. Here's where I end. I'm a Higgs boson. I'm really here. Good. Where are you really? This is what Anton Seininger was talking about. Where is that Higgs boson now? Exactly. You know. And then eventually, they're not there anymore. Right? Things don't last forever. So sooner or later, whatever you're looking at, it's not going to be there any longer. And so in the end, they'll become nothing. When? If something's there, exactly when does it become nothing? When is it no longer there? If a house, if a house catches on fire, at what point is it no longer a house? When it first catches on fire. You say, oh, look, the house is on fire. The house, the house is on fire. Right? The real house. I mean, you can knock on it. It's inherently existent, right? It's really there. You can walk into it, bump into it, and so forth. The house is on fire. And then the fire burns. At what point is there no longer a house? 
Where did the house go? If it was really there, where did the house go? Did the house become nothing? How can something that's not something, really something, how can it become nothing? Or if it turns into something else, exactly when did it lose its identity? If it was one thing, did it transform into many things? Or did it transform into one thing? You're looking for it. Looking for it. Where it came from, where it is, how it is, where does it go? And he says it, but he just goes right to the, he just throws right in the deep end of the pool. This is the way it is. Just puts you in the cauldron. It arose from insubstantiality. Insubstantiality, they now, they now appear even though they're non-existent. And then they'll become nothing. Consider that since these things, which are without permanence, stability or immutability, have no inherent nature, they are like illusions. They're like illusions. An illusion, yuma in Tibetan, that's what illusionists create, whether it's with modern technology like David Copperfield and the other entertainers, or whether it's an illusionist from classical India. But something appears to be there, and it, and it really does have causal efficacy. If you're, if you're watching, I've seen some of, on television, I've seen some of the extraordinary illusions created by David Copperfield. He's one of the best. Uh, and you look at it, and you could just swear it's got to be there. Got to be there. Absolutely. I mean, it's so obvious. It's really there. And it has causal efficacy. And you know why? Because you point a motion picture camera at it and you get an image. If it's not there, then how would you get an image? Right? How could, you, how could a machine, video camera, what have you, how could it photograph it if it's not there? The machine isn't diluted. It photographs it, and then you watch it on television. Whoa, that was an amazing illusion. It has causal efficacy. But how can it if it's not there? That's an illusion. And then we have reflections in a mirror. Buddha gave ten of them, ten analogies. Reflections in a mirror. They are so weird. So weird. Stand in front of a mirror, two meters away, look into the mirror, and four meters away from you is this extremely lifelike image of yourself. Two meters behind the mirror. And you say, wow, that certainly does look like me. Let's see if it's there. And you pull out a camera. And it's got one of the old, old-fashioned. You actually focus it with your fingers. And you focus it, you're two meters in front of the mirror, and you say, whoa, it's four meters away. Now the image of me just came into focus, sharp focus. It's four meters away. That's what the camera says. Let's click the shutter and see what happens. Let's take a photo of this entity that is four meters away. Click. And now we're using a digital. Wow, it's in perfectly sharp focus. There really was an image there. Because I just got a perfectly sharp photo of it. And it's the same as if I look over at Daniel, and he's roughly, you know, a few meters away. Okay, click. Here's my camera. Focus, same, click, same, photo, same. How can that be? Because Daniel's really there. You want it, you can go over and poke him. Let's all poke Daniel all the time. And okay, don't, 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 don't. One, you, you did it, yeah? Okay. I think we're, we're... It's the same photo. The photo doesn't look different. 
photo of your face, photo of your face in a mirror, it doesn't look different. But two meters behind the mirror, there's nothing at all. That is, there could be a, there could be a, a, a granite boulder, there could be empty space, there could be water, there could be jello. It really doesn't matter what there is there. It absolutely doesn't matter at all what is there be two meters behind the mirror. It just doesn't matter. The image was, was there because the camera lens told you that and it photographed it and you have an image. It was there. Look, it's real. I got a photo. This is physical evidence. This is physical evidence. Except it's not. But if it's not, then how can you photograph it? And if it's not there, how can it have causal, causal efficacy? How can it imprint your film or your digital camera and create an image. If it's not there, how can that be? Right? And that goes for all the other illusions. Rainbows, mirages, and so on. They appear and they have causal efficacy. They appear to be there and they're not. So that's our entry into dream yoga. Okay. And among the ten analogies as you very well know, my favorite one is the dreams. Because they have causal efficacy. They have causal efficacy within the, within the context of the dream. They often make pretty good sense. There are discontinuities, anomalies, and so forth, but overall, we're not just wildly confused with the sheer chaos of unrelated events. You know, Sometimes, sure, but that happens in the waking state, too. Not as much. But there's causal interrelationships within the dream. Even though there's nothing there, at all. And then when you wake up, of course you know that your heartbeat, your adrenal system, your brain states, your emotions, and so forth are influenced by what you dreamt. But there was nothing there. So how can this something that's not there have causal efficacy within its own context or outside of its context? How is that possible? Well, welcome to the land of dream yoga. So, enjoy your weekend. And as much as you can then, waking state, maintain that stillness of your awareness as you sustain the view. We've spent a month looking into the Dzogchen view. Sustain the view. However deep it is, don't, don't judge yourself. Oh, this isn't real, this is really Dzogchen and so forth and so on. Just sustain the view that if these appearances are actually arising in your substrate, then sustain that awareness that they are arising in your substrate. They're not really out there. They appear to be, and they're not. Right? As any physicist or neuroscientist will tell you, let alone Buddhists and Hindus, the appearances seem to be out there, and they're not. They're qualia. They're arising in the space of your mind. They're not inside your head. You won't find them there. They're in the space of your mind. And your space of your mind is right out there. Right? I mean, where else could it be? Because that's where the appearances are. And the appearances are in the space of your mind. So your space of your mind is rather big. Where the clouds are, where the sun is, where the moon is. That's where the space of your mind is. So sustain that view. Sustain the view. Sustain your insight into the impermanent being impermanent. The non-inherently existent, arising, empty, and yet still having causal efficacy. So dream yoga you can do. Daytime dream yoga. No reason you can't. You can start today. You can start achieving dream yoga, accomplishing dream yoga today. And not wait, not wonder how it's going to turn out. It turns out by practicing correctly in the present moment, and that's how you accomplish dream yoga. There will be more, but that's enough for now. Enjoy your weekend. See you next time.